So today we're talking about Good Friday, and you're probably thinking, hey, wait a minute, it's uh, Palm Sunday. You're off a week. Well, you get a little, gets a little tricky during this week of uh, Holy Week or Passion Week because you got Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter all in a week. So last week we actually talked about Palm Sunday. We talked about the meaning of it. So today I want to talk about what about Good Friday. See, last week we had Palm Sunday when Jesus comes riding into town on the back of a donkey and he's coming in and people are all shouting Hosanna like the song that we sang. And Hosanna simply means God saves us. And everybody's excited to see Jesus. They're excited for what he's going to do. They have great expectations of what Jesus is doing. But a couple days later, everything changes for them. Suddenly, the expectations that they had for Jesus are not being met. They totally had a plan that Jesus would come into town, that he would demolish the Roman Empire, that he would take away the power from Caesar, and the people thought, once he does that, we're everything in our life is going to be great. If Jesus would do the plan that we have for him, everything would be good, and Jesus doesn't do what they thought he would do. Simply two or three days later, after Palm Sunday, they're waving the branches, suddenly people are recognizing that, that the expectations they have for Jesus are wrong. And so my guess is that the people at that time were probably wondering, sarcastically, what is this whole big deal about Jesus? What's the big deal? He didn't do what we thought he was going to do. And sometimes when you start thinking, what's the big deal? It's because the expectations in your life didn't go the way you thought they would. And sometimes it does create pain in our life. And sometimes... That pain needs comfort. So today I want to talk about Good Friday, and I want to ask the question, what is the big deal about Good Friday? Why is it a, good, why is it a big deal? Some of you know my niece Kirsten. Kirsten and her husband Spencer kind of sit over there quite often when they come. And they, they're members of another church, but they've been coming ever since we started just to show support now and then. So it's been good. So Kirsten's the daughter of my sister Mary that usually sits over there too. They're not here today. So um, Kirsten is probably my favorite niece of all, and I can say that because she named her son Jack. So <laughs> by far, she is my favorite. And so my nieces that are listening to this on podcast, you too can be my favorite niece. It's not too late to have more kids in the name of Jack. So my niece Kirsten, actually, her and her husband, uh, Jack is about, I don't know, a year and a half, and Kirsten's eight months pregnant, and so I affectionately call her little baby Becky, and so um, she'll be Becky until she's born. So I love Kirsten and Spencer. They're good people. So one thing. If you're in my family, you're fair game for any illustration, just to warn you all. So Kirsten and Spencer, they have this great life. They have a wonderful expectation of a baby being born in four weeks. And this weekend was their weekend to set up the nursery to get everything prepared. Kind of that little swamp you do. One kid goes to another room, another kid. So everything's going to be great. Until a couple weeks ago, Spencer started to have just some abdominal pain. But, you know, you're 36. You know, you don't expect anything a little Advil later, and you're fine. And it wasn't until Monday this week that he went to the doctor, and the doctor's like, okay, something's off here. And so Monday night, he's having a scan. Tuesday, the results are coming back, and it doesn't look good. Suddenly, you're hearing words. Mm 
that are discouraging. You're hearing words like cancer. So, so you're hearing words like that in chemotherapy. And so, so Tuesday, he's going to, you know, here it finds out on Tuesday, Wednesday uh, morning, he gets up and he goes to work. And next thing you know, he's in terrible pain. Goes emergency room, and they're immediately going to do surgery on Thursday and do radical surgery on the inside. And, um, and he get out of surgery, and the doctors are like, well, this is what we suspect, but we're not going to know for a few days till all the labs come back. And suddenly you're in that place between something is wrong and you're wondering what the resolution is. Something is wrong. And you wonder, what is the future going to be? And you're in that valley for four or five days wondering, what are the test results going to come back? Is it cancer? Is it chemotherapy? How severe is it? What is the plan going to be? And I think every single one of us knows what that is like, to live in that valley, to wondering, what is God going to do about this? Living in that place of fear and that place where your hope is just seems to be shot. And wondering, God, are you going to show up and what are you going to do? See, the disciples knew that very well in the Gospels when it talks about after Jesus fed the 5,000, that they had this incredible experience. Everything went well. And suddenly afterwards, Jesus is like, quick, get on this boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples get on the boat and they're halfway out and suddenly there's a huge storm. And you can wonder the disciples were saying, what in the world is going on? We just, everything was going perfect. We had a great outreach. Suddenly we're on the boat and we're wondering, are we even going to live through the night? And all of us kind of understand what that's like. And see, what happens to us is we know God is good. We know God is faithful. But we wonder, what is he doing? And we have a tendency just to lose expectation after a while. See, sometimes disappointment in our life can cause us to get to the point where we just kind of give up. And when we give up, we just sort of show up, but we don't really expect God to do anything in our life. And some of you might be here today kind of living with low expectations of God or low expectations of what He can do in your life and wondering, will He do anything? And if you're in that situation today, I'm glad you're here because this message today is about what is the big deal about Good Friday. And we go back and we understand what Good Friday is all about. It rekindles the expectations in us of the goodness of God. See, sometimes we start to even ask the question when we give up, you know, does it even matter how I live my life? Does it even matter if I'm good or follow God or go to church? We wonder that. And that is a very good question. And that's a whole other series. Today I want to talk about what I think the better question is. Instead of asking so much does it matter how I live my life, but ask the question, does it matter how Jesus lived his life? Because when we understand how Jesus lived his life, that's going to determine our future. How Jesus lived his life determines our future. See, the big deal about Good Friday is that God is going to do something for you that you never, ever could do on your own. The big deal about Good Friday is that God is going to give you a gift 
of salvation that you never could earn or never deserve on your own. That's the big deal about Good Friday, is that God is coming to invade our lives to give us something we never could earn on our own. And that's why we celebrate Good Friday, because we remember how Jesus lived his life. See, Good Friday reminds us that sin always separates us from God. And Good Friday reminds us that because of Jesus dying on the cross, we can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. See, the big deal of Good Friday is that God gives us the faith to believe this. But see, sometimes in our life, instead of focusing on faith and what God does for us, we have a tendency to go to the place of God. We just want you to remove our pain and our discomfort. And that's what the early followers of Jesus were doing on Palm Sunday. They were saying, we're worshiping you as long as you do what we want you to do. So what do we do when our expectations aren't being met? And we find ourselves in that situation, we're in that valley, and things are not looking at all good. What do we do at that time? I think it's a good time to remember what Good Friday is about and remember that Jesus came to be our personal Savior, that Jesus came to live the life we couldn't live and to die the death that, that uh, we deserve and to defeat the enemy that we could not conquer. The first thing that Jesus did is that he lived the life that we couldn't live. See, if Jesus was going to pay for our sins, he could not have any sins of his own. He could not have just done a little bit of sin. He had to be perfect. And not only did he have to be perfect, but he had to prove that he could resist sin. So that's why Jesus came to the earth, to prove to the world that he could withstand temptation, that he could withstand trials, that every single thing that you and I face, Jesus would have to face during his 33 years to prove that he could defeat it all. And that's what Jesus did when he came. And Jesus proved that he was without sin. That's why in Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our own weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus came to this world to prove that he could live without sin. But also, not only had he be perfect, but he had to die the death we deserve. In 1 Peter 2, verse 4, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we, might be, that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, by dying on the cross, Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. In exchange for it, he gave us his righteousness. See, when we trust Christ for our salvation, basically we're making a trade. We're giving him all the junk in our life, all the sin, all the doubt, all the consequences of sin that we've got into And he's giving us his righteousness. And we make the exchange through the gift of faith that God gives us the ability to have faith in Christ, not just to believe in him, but to actually follow him. See, by faith, we trade in our sin and all the accompanying things of the death penalty for his righteousness in life. But the question always remains, why did he have to die on a cross? You know, why couldn't God just come and say, hey, you know, you're all forgiven? I'm just going to forgive you. I know you're sorry. I know you made a mistake. I'm going to forgive you. Why didn't God just do that? Why did we have to go through all the trouble of the cross, all the trouble of those lambs sacrificing every year? Why did we have to go through all of that? And that's what our culture so often wants to say is, why can't God just say, poof, I forgive you? 
See, in Hebrews 9, we learn why, and it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, the writers of Hebrews saying that for God to forgive our sins, the penalty for our sin had to be paid by the shedding of the blood. See, somebody has to die for your sins. You can die for your sin and spend eternity in hell, or Jesus can die for your sins and you can spend eternity in heaven. And see, that's the big deal of what Jesus did that day. And fortunately, God lives by his word. To prove how much God loves you, he lived by his word that he would sacrifice his one and only son. It had been a whole lot easier for God just to say, you know what, I'm going to forgive you all. But the fact is, God lives by his word. And he proved it to us the day that he sent his son to the cross to die on the cross. And that gives us gratitude to know that God actually lives by his word because if he expects you and I to live by his word, he does the same thing and he lives by his own word too. See, anybody, anytime anybody tries to tell you the Bible's outdated or it's foolishness for today or it's not relevant today, remind them of the relevance of what Jesus did on the cross. Because if what Jesus did on the cross, the Bible's outdated, then it'd be what Jesus did was outdated. But thankfully, the word is true as much as it was 2,000 years ago as it is today. And that's why God's word is always our guarantee that God actually obeys his own word. See, at the cross, every one of the consequences of our sin were laid on Jesus, therefore satisfying God's demand for someone to die in our place. See, Jesus did all of this, lived the perfect life, died the death that we deserve to do one thing, to conquer the enemy that we could not conquer. Because Jesus was able to do that, he was able to defeat death. And that's why in Revelations 1, verse 18, it says, Jesus says, I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and hell. Jesus defeated death once and for all. But then people wonder, okay, how does that apply to me? If Jesus died on the cross, and he was charged with things that he did not do, how do suddenly I become the recipient? How does that, what he did, how do I get the credit for that? See, last week we talked about the significance of the Passover in the Old Testament. When the Jewish families would arrive in Jerusalem and they would be taking that little lamb with them, that lamb that would be slaughtered. And they would take that lamb every year into the temple so that they could slaughter that lamb for the forgiveness of their family's sins. They would do that every single year. And that lamb had to be proven to be without blemish. Just like Christ could not have any sins, that little lamb that they would bring in had to be a healthy and a strong lamb. They couldn't bring a defective lamb. So that lamb had to stay with that family for four days so they could prove to everybody in Jerusalem that that lamb was perfect. And so those families were a little nervous because you got a lot of people in town. You got a lot of little lambs running around, so you didn't want to lose your lamb. So what the families would do is they would take this little sign and they would attach it to the lamb. So that sign I would put on there, you know, the Jack Seitzma family lamb. So if that lamb ever got away, people would know, okay, that's for Jack's family. And Ron would have one, and Dave would have one. And all these families have little lambs running around with name tags on because you didn't want to lose your lamb. And so what Jesus did, and so what God did on the day that Jesus died on the cross, he did something that nobody saw. 
Nobody anticipated this. See, Jesus went to the cross for sins that he did not commit. He went to the cross as an innocent man. And what they did back in that day is if you died on a cross, on the top of the cross, they would put a rap sheet. And on that sheet, they would list out every single sin that that person did. And so when they hung Jesus on the cross, you might remember in the Bible story, they would nail that rap sheet to the top of his cross. And on there, they would say every sin that Jesus did. And you remember that after Jesus died, his very last words were, it is finished. So what God did that day is he took all the sins that we committed and he put them on that cross. See, Jesus was innocent of every single charge that came against him. And what God did, the perfect and the just judge, is he looked down that day and said, because Jesus is innocent of every charge that they placed against him, all the sins of humanity can go on the cross. And in John 1 verse or in Colossians 2, verse 13, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it all away, nailing it to the cross. That's what God did on that day. That is how our sins transferred from that little lamb that our family was carrying around and went to the cross. Because God, the perfect and the just judge, said Jesus was innocent. And so God was able to take every sin that you and I have ever committed in the past or in the present or in the future, and he put that on Jesus. That is how our sins are washed away. So someday when you go to heaven, and you walk into heaven that day, and you come before the great white throne of judgment that they talk about in Revelations 20, and you're going to get there someday after you die, and they're going to come before you, and they're going to come out with a list of all the sins that you have done. And you're going to look at that list and go, oh no. But you have to remember Jesus' very last words were, it is finished. Another way to interpret that is paid in full. Because what Jesus declared on that cross that day is every one of your sins was paid in full. And so what they would do at that time is after a person died on the cross, they would go over that that rap sheet that's on the top of the cross and they would stamp it with a Greek word that meant paid in full. And that's what Jesus did for you. He stamped your rap sheet paid in full. And that's what's going to happen when you go to heaven. And they're going to come out there with all the things you did. You're going to see stamped on there, paid in full. And that's the big deal of Good Friday. That it says, paid in full. That there's nothing against you because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And that's why Jesus is the only way for a relationship with God. There is no other way that you can get paid in full stamped on your rap sheet without Jesus dying on the cross for you. There's no other way that that would happen. It's by the gift of grace and faith that God gives us the ability to have our sheet say paid in full. See, God gives us that ability not just to have faith that Jesus exists, but he gives us faith to believe that we can follow him. See, that's what salvation is all about. It's not just believing that Jesus died on the cross and I'm good. 
Faith is about believing it so much that you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to do what he says to do and you're going to follow him in obedience. Faith in Jesus says, I'm no longer first. Jesus is first and I'm going to follow him. And you're going to try to do it as best as you can. And that's how we become a believer in Jesus Christ is when we have the faith to believe him so much that we're going to follow him. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today or you're struggling with your relationship with Jesus and you're wondering, how does it happen? How do I go from a non-believer to a follower? It's the gift of faith that allows it. And God's going to give gives you that ability that you can stop following yourself and to follow Jesus. And it just starts by acknowledging that the goodness of God to give you the faith and the grace to believe in Jesus. And that's where you begin your journey. You begin this journey that will transform your life, but also gives you the eternal security that when you go to heaven someday and you can see that your rap sheet says paid in full. I want to close my message today by talking about Peter. See, how do you live a good Friday when life doesn't seem so good? How do you live a good Friday when on one hand you're celebrating what Jesus has done? You're grateful for the rap sheet saying paid in full. You're grateful, but yet you're over here in that valley wondering, how am I going to make it through? How am I going to live? What am I going to do? So I'm going to close my message today by talking about what we need to do is learn to walk on water. In, first, in Matthew 14, we have the story of Peter walking on water, and I want to read this. It says, immediately after this was immediately after, this was immediately after Jesus fed the 5,000. Great, wonderful day. Disciples are thinking, wow, we scored big. Good day. And then this picks up in uh, Matthew 14, verse 22. It says, immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from the land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came towards them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It is a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once, Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. I think this is one of those uh, stories in the Bible that has so much incredible meaning for us. There's so much application to our daily life and to how to live with daily struggles in our life. I think we often overlook the symbolic meaning of the sea in the New Testament. On Thursday, when I was with Spencer and Kirsten, I went to see Spencer before a surgery with two of my sisters because we want to pray for Spencer and Kirsten before a surgery. And I looked at Spencer and I said, you know, I, I don't know why you're here. I don't know why God didn't stop uh, this cancer. I don't know why he didn't miraculously heal you. But I do know one thing that God is going to do through this. 
is that he is going to teach you and Kirsten how to walk on water that you are going to learn to walk on water and that you are going to hear God's voice like you like Peter did in Matthew 14 that God is going to say to you don't be afraid take courage I am here see no matter what situation that you are in your life as a follower of Jesus you can have confidence and trust that you will hear God say don't be afraid take courage I am here and then God is going to teach you how to walk on water See, back in the days of Jesus, people were scared of the sea. Part of the culture was this big concern that the sea was filled with dragons and it was filled with demons and it was filled with monsters. And you remember in, uh, in, in, in Job uh, chapter 14 they, or 41, they talk about Leviathan, the sea creature, and the description is that he had terrifying teeth and scales like rolls, rows of shields, closely fastening together and hard as stone. It says that Leviathan was a resident of the sea, knowing no fear and apparently immune to all human weapons. See, in other parts of the Bible, bodies of water like the sea, they were always symbols for evil and death and chaos. So often in the Bible, the sea represents everything you're scared of. It represents your fears. It represents your anxieties. It represents your doubts. It represents your troubles. It represents your concerns. It represents words like cancer. It represents words like chemotherapy. It represents any struggle that you and I could possibly have. That's what the sea so often represents. It represents that shame that you have in your life that sometimes you don't know what you're going to do with. So it should be no surprise that in the book of Revelations, that the author of Revelations, John, says that someday the sea is going to be gone forever. In Revelations 21, verse verse 1, it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old heaven had disappeared, and the sea was gone. That's coming. And in verse 4, John says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain, for all these things are gone forever. See, there's a connection between the sea And there's a connection between our pain and our grief and our struggles. And John says, someday, both of them are going to be gone. And we long for that day. We long for that day when our troubles are gone, our fears are gone, our doubts are gone, our insecurities are gone, our diseases are gone. And we long for the day when the tears are finally wiped away. And they're done. But that day is coming. That day is coming. It's not here yet. And so sometimes our expectations get off because we so long for that day, the Revelations 21 day. But we're stuck in 2019 where we have the sea and we have the pain and we have the tears and we have to learn how to live in 2019. See, fortunately, the day that Jesus went to the cross, when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just die for my sins and for your sins. He died for everything that the sea represents. He died so we did not have to live controlled by fear and anxiety and doubt and sickness. Jesus defeated every single thing that the sea represents on the day that he died on the cross. And that's the big deal of Good Friday is that Jesus conquered 
death on our behalf. And so because of Jesus' death on the cross, we don't have to drown in the sea. We don't have to be on the boat like the disciples, worried that we're going to be tossed around and that we're going to be thrown into the sea and that we're going to drown. We don't have to worry about that as believers in Jesus Christ, that we're going to drown. Because as believers in Jesus Christ, his plan for us is to walk on the sea. And that's what Peter did that day. He walked on that sea. And that's God's plan for you and me and every single one of us is that we are going to walk on the sea, that we're going to walk on top of every circumstance that we're fearful of, every circumstance that makes us nervous and upset and insecure. We are going to walk on top of those. See, it's easy to look at the situation. If you're those disciples in the boat, I am sure your first question was, where is Jesus? Now, probably your first question is, why are you allowing this to happen? And that is usually where our brains go to first. Why are you allowing this to happen? Couldn't you have stopped it? And that is a wonderful question. And ask that question. I ask that question. It's a good question. But I think sometimes the best question is ask, where is Jesus? And see, that text tells us that Jesus was in the mountains praying. And it's easy to look at that and think, well, why don't you just get in the boat? It had been a whole lot easier if you were in that boat with me. But we know from the book of Hebrews in 7, verse 25, it says this. It says, therefore Jesus is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. That's Good Friday. It says, Jesus lives forever to intercede with God on our behalf. That is why Jesus was in the mountain praying. Because he was praying for you and he was praying for me. He was with us because he was praying for us. And he knew the trouble that we would be in. He knew that boat that we're going to be in someday that's going to be rocking all over. And so Jesus says, I'm going to be in the mountains and I'm going to be praying for you and I'm going to be interceding for you. But Jesus goes one step further. He's also on that water waiting to reach out to you. And I think it's a beautiful picture of Peter looking at Jesus. And at first he's scared. Because it's a whole new perspective that he's seeing Jesus that day. He didn't expect to see Jesus walking on water. He expected to sit across the table from Jesus. And I think for some of us, we're going to see Jesus in a whole new way, a whole new perspective as he helps us to walk on water. We're going to see him in a different way. And so Peter looks out and he says to Jesus, he reaches out to Jesus, says, that is really you. Tell me and I'll come. And that's a good prayer. If that's really you, God, I'm going to come. And I love it that Peter got out of the boat and started to walk on the water. It's a beautiful picture of Peter not being overwhelmed by what is in the sea. But then the text does tell us that Peter looked down and he started to stumble a little bit and that he started sinking a little bit. Then Jesus reached out his hand and pulled him out. And that's a picture of what Jesus is going to do all for every single one of us is that he's always ready to pull us out of the sea. That we might sink because we're human. That we're going to be scared at times. We're going to be doubtful at times. That is a normal part of fear is to sink a little bit. But Jesus is there to pull you out. I think sometimes we look at that passage and we, we think Jesus kind of scolds Peter a little bit by saying, Peter, you know, you have such little faith. Why don't you trust in me? See, I don't read it that way. 
I think what Peter was saying, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong, but I think what Jesus was saying to Peter, I think he was saying, look what you did, Peter, with just a little bit of faith. You were able to walk on the water with a little bit of faith. How about those other disciples? They never got out of the boat. Why would Jesus scold Peter? You'd be yelling at the ones in the boat that never dared get out. But I think what Jesus is saying in there is, look, you little bit of faith, you can walk on water. Just a little bit, you can walk on water. I think sometimes we think, oh, my faith has to be so huge. And we just have all these barriers to think, I'm not there yet. I'm not good enough. I'm not, no. When, she, you, when, when your account says paid in full, you got faith. And I think sometimes we marginalize the amount of faith that we have. And we look at Peter and remember, he just had a little faith and he doubted Jesus, but he was able to walk on water. How much more water can we walk on when we have a little bit more faith and a little bit more confidence in who Jesus is? And I think that's what this message is about. It's about giving us the encouragement to say, let's get out of the boat of predictability. Let's get out of this boat and let's walk on water. See, I think that boat represents a lot of times in our life are just our comfort zone. At the place that we get that we know, okay, we're secure here. Everything's fine here. I, I'm not risking much here. I can just bounce along in my boat on the water. And I like this passage because I think what Jesus is saying is, Peter, you want to show you have faith. You're going to have to get out. You're going to have to risk a little bit and walk on some water. So I'd encourage you today to walk on the water. Sometimes I think we like to ignore our fears. We like to ignore the sea in our life. Because we think if we ignore it, we don't have to deal with it. And Good Friday is a reminder that Jesus already dealt with it. That he already defeated it. So it's ever separating you from confidence and from the assurance and salvation. What's ever separating you from just the confidence to know that you can be who God is, I think it's a reminder that you can walk on the water. I think it's a time for us to say, yeah, I'm willing to get out of the boat. I'm willing to get out of the boat and I'm going to try something I maybe haven't tried before.